Awesome. Well, it's great to have you. The video that you just watched is actually a celebration from last week. A young man named Colin, who's part of our church, uh, made a decision to follow Jesus and went public with that in, uh, in baptism. You know, one of the things uh, that we love about our church, but also can be kind of challenging about our church, is that when you have four services over a weekend and you have multiple life groups, it can be difficult to get everyone in the same room at the same time. And so we always want to stop and celebrate um, when people are making big steps of faith, when people are making commitments to Jesus, and we know that the larger we get, the harder that can be, and so that's kind of why we want to show you that video of Colin making a big decision uh, in getting baptized. In fact, some of you might not know this, um, and if you're newer to our church, there would be no way that you would know this, but actually over the past couple of weeks alone, uh, we've had Colin get baptized, and we've had five other people go public uh, in their dedication with Jesus and getting baptized through life groups. And so just incredible things that are happening at our church, and we always just want to pause and kind of celebrate those things together. I just want to uh, mention as well that as it relates to baptism, if you're a person who is curious about baptism, uh, we would look and we would say that baptism is actually the first step of obedience for a person who has dedicated their life to following Jesus. And so let me just say that if you're a person here today and you've been investigating Christ and you have recently made a decision to follow him, or if you're a person who's been following Christ for a while and you've never gotten baptized, listen, I just wanna let you know, we would instruct you to do that, uh, to be baptized, to go public with your faith in Christ. We would look at baptism and we would say that baptism is an external, uh, it's an external display kind of of an internal commitment. It's a way of really going public and telling the world that you follow Jesus. And so if you've never done that before, we wanna encourage you to do that. We'd love to connect you with that. And so a couple ways you can do that. One is Sarah Beth mentioned a little bit ago about those connect cards that are in the chairs in front of you. On those connect cards, there's a box that you can check that says, I'd like more information about going public in baptism. And so if you check that, we'll get you connected to a bunch of different information, or you can talk to your life group leader. That's a great way to get connected to baptism as well. So that's wonderful. Just wanted to let you know about that. Some really fun things to celebrate. Well, this weekend here, we are actually gonna be continuing together in a series that we've been in for the past several weeks that we've been calling Jesus Come and See. And so let me just say that if you're a guest with us here today, if it's your first time at Grace, let me just extend a very, very special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're our guest and we hope that you feel comfortable. My name is Tony. I am uh, the campus pastor here at Grace. If we've never had a chance to meet, I would love to remedy that. So please come and stop me in the cafe afterwards. Love to hear how you got here and how you got connected. But if you are uh, kind of the first time here, if you're a guest for the first time here, I think you came on an awesome weekend, quite honestly. And I think the reason for that is because this series, the series that we're doing right now, one of the ways that we've been describing it is like this. We've been saying that this series is an invitation into an investigation. It's an invitation into an investigation. And here's what we mean. This is an invitation to everybody, uh, regardless of where you are in your faith, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're a person that's an investigating Jesus. So this is an invitation for you to come and see Jesus, to come and investigate him for yourself, to come and look at his teaching, to come and see the claims that he made about himself, to come and see his life, to come and see his ministry. And again, the reason we said that this series, we think it's so important is because of this. We said that every single one of us, at least in our society, that we all begin our perception of Jesus with something that we called a hand-me-down version of Jesus. And here's what we meant by that. We said that every single one of us, our first initial understanding of Jesus is usually one that's inherited 
right? It's one that's passed down to us. It's a hand-me-down Jesus. And so whether your understanding of Jesus was handed down to you from your mom and dad, whether your understanding of Jesus was handed down to you by a religious background, whether your understanding of Jesus was handed down from the media, we said all of us start there, right? We all start with kind of a hand-me-down version. But in this series, what we're saying is, even though we all start there, we don't wanna stop there, Right? Even though we begin with a hand-me-down Jesus, there is a need to actually come and see him for ourselves. There is a need to investigate the things of Jesus on our own terms, kind of individually for us to do that. And so our hope in this series is really this. Our hope is to replace our hand-me-down version of Jesus with a first-hand encounter with Jesus. That's been our hope and our prayer through this whole series. Now, you might remember if you've been with us, the way that we've been doing this, we said is we've been journeying through uh, the gospel of Matthew. Now, some of you might know The Gospel of Matthew is actually a book in the Bible, but much more than that, the Gospel of Matthew is more than simply a book in the Bible. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew is actually one of the earliest eyewitness first century historical accounts of the life of Jesus that we have in our possession. So Matthew was a guy who would have known Jesus, would have walked with Jesus, would have talked with Jesus. He was a witness to Jesus's life. And we're actually told that he would have documented the things that Jesus said and did. And so we actually have that, it's the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're kind of journeying through that as we come and see him together. And so today, as we continue in this series, as we continue to investigate Jesus, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 17. So I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible, why don't you open it up with me, if you would please do that. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 17 today. As we continue in this investigation, coming and seeing Jesus, Matthew chapter 17 is where we're gonna be going here together today. Now, by the way, let me just mention, if you missed any of the previous conversations in the series, we would highly encourage you to catch up if you want to. You can do that on our website, on our app, on our podcast. All of those platforms are for free and there should be some information in your program about how you can access those things. But Matthew 17 is where we're going. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, by the way, that's no problem at all. You can feel free to use one of our Bibles, those black Bibles under the chairs, page 687 is where you're gonna find Matthew chapter 17. And then let me just say this too. If you're a guest and you don't physically own a copy of the Bible, we actually would really encourage you to take one of ours. Please just take it home with you, make it a gift from us to you. We think it's really important that you have a Bible. Okay, so Matthew 17, go ahead and get your Bibles and I'll meet you there. Now, as you're finding uh, Matthew chapter 17, when I was reading this passage that we're gonna be studying over the past couple of weeks, I was kind of reminded of something that I used to do when I was a kid. So, so back when I was a kid, um, whenever my brother and I uh, needed to burn energy, one of the things that we would do sometimes, my dad would actually have us do, is he would actually have us box him. That's kind of a cool thing. So, so my dad, he actually knows a little bit about boxing. And so what he would do is he had, he had his own pair of boxing gloves. And then he had actually purchased for us these little kids boxing gloves. And so he would actually have us get in the living room. And he, of course, would get down on his knees. You know, he'd kind of get down to our level because he's a full-grown man. And he'd have us put on our boxing gloves. And he would teach us kind of the basics of boxing. Like I said, my dad knew some stuff about boxing. So he would kind of teach us how to jab and he would teach us how to defend ourselves and keep our guard up, teach us how to land a left hook and those kind of things. And I just got to tell you, as a kid, I didn't think there was anything cooler than this, right? I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I felt like the toughest guy in the world to be learning boxing from my dad. And as a little kid, I could just tell you, I used to go full strength all the time. Right, And so I would just swing with all my might and I would just go at him. Of course, very rarely would I ever land a punch on the old man. But every once in a while, every once in a while, I would connect. 
And when I hit would connect, my dad would always take the hit. He'd always encourage me, say, that's a good hit. Or he'd say, man, nice form or something like that. But of course, my dad, right, even though I'm going full strength, my dad would, of course, hold back, right? Because he's a full-grown man. It'd be a different story if he didn't, right? He would get down on his knees and he would pull punches and he would go easy and he would conceal and restrain his power and strength for our safety. But I can just tell you this much. I can tell you that I actually remember as a little kid that even though my dad would go easy on us and even though he would take it light with us, there would be moments, there would be moments when I would catch a glimpse, when I would just get a small like glimmer of what he was capable of. And there would be moments that even just there, I would get a glimpse of the power and strength that was behind that man. And I gotta tell you that in those moments, I was put in my place. And I actually remember thinking to myself, my goodness, is he strong? I can actually tell you, my dad, my dad is one of those guys, he is one of the strongest men that I know. Super strong. You guys ever meet someone like that? Someone who's just like freakishly strong? I'm talking like abnormal man strength. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like someone that their frame and their strength don't match. Like that's my dad. So my dad, um, his whole life worked in masonry. So, you know, bricks, block, stone. I remember his hands, like growing up, they were like sandpaper. You know what I'm talking about? And he was just so, so, so strong, freakishly strong. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, yeah, every little boy thinks that his dad is the strongest guy in the world. But I'm like, I'm not kidding you, you know? People are like, my dad can beat up your dad. But I'm just telling you, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> he still can. He still, I don't even know who your dad is. My dad can beat up your dad, I guarantee it. He was just a strong dude. In fact, I remember as a kid, I remember one time we were in the backyard we were picking up sticks and we were putting them on a fire pit that we had. And I actually remember seeing my dad. There was a branch that fell off of a tree and this branch wasn't like any branch. It actually looked like another tree. And I remember I watched my dad. He went over to this branch and he picked it up and he threw it onto the fire pit. And as a little guy, I remember my mouth just hit the ground and I thought to myself, what manner of man is this that he can throw foliage with such great ease? Like I was just shocked and awed. Now, here's why I tell you that. Because I, I can, couldn't articulate when I was a child, but I can articulate to you now that the way I perceived my dad as a kid had a psychological effect on me. The way that I perceived my dad actually had a huge impact, uh, not just in how I viewed him, but actually also how I viewed myself and how I viewed my life and how I viewed my circumstances, you see? Because here's what I came to find. Again, I couldn't articulate this then, but I can articulate it now. That when my dad was willing to get down on his hands and his knees, as strong as he was, and when he was willing to pull punches and go easy, what that communicated to me was it communicated that my dad wanted to be with me. It communicated that he wanted to be accessible, that he wanted to get on my level, that he wanted a relationship. But I can also tell you that whenever I got a glimpse of my dad in his full strength, that actually had an impact on me too. It affected me because it gave me confidence. It gave me confidence. It actually gave me security. I actually remember thinking about my dad and thinking, if anyone tried to mess with me or they tried to mess with my mom or my family, they would get on his bad side and you do not want to be on the wrong side of that man. And it gave me incredible confidence and it gave me incredible strength. Now, here's why I tell you that. I tell you all of that is because of this. Would you believe me if I told you that the way that you view Jesus really matters? Would you believe me if I told you that, that the way that you view Jesus matters more than you might think? 
Now listen, I know that not everybody in this room follows Jesus. Some of you are still investigating Jesus, but here's what I believe. I believe that the way you view Jesus has the profound ability to change not just the way that you view him, but also to change the way you view yourself and the way you change your circumstances. The thing that you're going through in your life right now, I believe that the way that you view Jesus has a huge impact on how it is that you interpret your life and the circumstances that you go through. And I think what we're gonna find today is that Jesus, I think what Matthew is going to invite us to come and see is that Jesus is actually much, much more than we tend to make him. He's much, much more. If you were here last week, you actually might remember Dan was teaching. He did such a good job, by the way. If you missed his talk, you should go back and listen to it. But if you were here, you might remember Dan introduced us to two pictures. You guys remember this? Two pictures of Jesus. And I thought this was really interesting. The first, the first picture of Jesus he showed us was this picture right here. And Dan went on to tell us, if you were here last week, you might remember this. Dan said that this is actually the most famous painting of Jesus in human history. It was painted in 1940, 1941. There's over 500 million copies that have been circulated. And what Dan said, I thought this was really helpful. He said that this is actually the picture uh, that comes to most people's minds when we think about Jesus. But Dan told us, he said, there's a problem with that. And the problem, of course, is that Jesus is extremely white, right? He's a European guy. I think Dan put it that he's flirting with a mullet in this picture, which is very, very true. And, and, and then he showed us a second picture. You guys remember this? Uh, this was so, so paradigm shifting to me. He showed us this second picture. And the, section, the second picture he explained to us is actually what forensic anthropologists have compiled together based on the evidence of different skull structures of first century Galilean Jewish men which is what Jesus would have been. And so this picture actually probably looks a lot more like what Jesus would look like than this picture. And I know for me, when Dan was showing that to me last week, I was like, oh, that's a little troubling. I don't know if I wanna hang that in my kitchen. <laughs> and, yet, and yet what's so fascinating is that Dan was saying that there, sometimes we come to a synthetic version of Jesus and we don't come to an authentic version. But what I wanna do this week is I actually wanna take it a little bit further. And what I wanna to do today is I actually wanna show you a third picture of Jesus. And I believe the third picture that we're gonna see in Matthew chapter 17 is maybe even more paradigm shifting than even this photo here because I believe, I believe that oftentimes the way that we think about Jesus, quite honestly, is very incomplete. And I think what Matthew is gonna invite us to come and see is that Jesus is actually much more than you might initially think. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew 17, we're gonna start off in verse one. Here we go. Now, fair warning, this passage is a little weird. All right, so I warned you. There you go. Matthew 17, verse one. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so let's just hit pause there for a minute. Let me give you a little bit of context. So up to this point, in the book of Matthew, Jesus has been doing his ministry for actually a very long time. The Bible says that over the course of his ministry, he's accumulated a group of disciples. Uh, specifically, there was a group of 12 kind of committed disciples. And notice in this passage, the Bible tells us that Jesus identifies three of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up on a high mountain 
with him. Now, some of you might know this, um, within Jesus' 12 disciples, he actually had an inner circle of three guys who would have been the closest to him, all right? So that's Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that on this particular occasion, Jesus takes these guys up on top of a mountain. Now, that might seem weird to you, but I want you to understand that when you read the Gospels, what you find is that it was Jesus' regular habit to oftentimes withdraw himself, go to the top of a mountain and pray. And so my guess is Peter, James, and John probably thought this is gonna be a prayer meeting as usual, right? And so they go with Jesus up on top of the mountain, but what was about to happen next was anything but typical and anything than what they would have expected because watch what happens next. Look what the Bible says, verse two. There he was, now look at this, he was transfigured before them. His face began to shine or shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. All right, so this is a really, really weird passage. No one would be anticipating this would happen. The Bible says that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, just them. He goes up to the top of the mountain and the Bible says when they get there, he transfigured, he transfigures. Now, this is an interesting word, transfigured. I, think, uh, I don't think I've heard people kind of in modern common day conversations ever use the word transfigured but it's actually fascinating. In the original Greek language, the word transfigured is actually where we get our English word metamorphosis from, metamorphosis. That's kind of the idea that's here. It literally means to transform. It means to transfigure. It means to change one's form. If you think about it, what is a metamorphosis? A metamorphosis is a revelation of what is not yet seen. That's what a metamorphosis is, right? If you look at a caterpillar you wouldn't think that that little caterpillar would have inside of it the potential to become something as beauty, beautiful and as glorious as a butterfly. And what the Bible is telling us is that what's happening in this moment is that the disciples are getting a glimpse, they're getting a small taste of what Jesus truly is and what he can be. And look what the Bible says. This is really interesting. The Bible says that when he transfigured, his face began to shine like the sun, like in all of its radiance, like can't look at it kind of bright. And then the Bible says that his clothes, even his clothes became as white as the light. And so this is interesting. It's kind of strange. The Bible says Jesus starts to basically kind of glow. I know it sounds really weird to us. And I actually think, by the way, that this language about Jesus' face shining like the sun and him glowing is actually very significant. I'm gonna tell you why in here just a minute, but let me just show you what happens next. So look what happens in the next verse. So the Bible says in verse three, just there, just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, so if this, if this passage isn't trippy enough already, the Bible says that here's Jesus like glowing. And as he's glowing, the Bible says that suddenly these two guys appear. And the two guys, the Bible names are Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Now, let me just clue you in. If you're not a Bible person, uh, you may not be familiar with these two characters. These two guys, Moses and Elijah, uh, were actually very prominent Old Testament characters. Uh, Moses, he actually would have preceded Jesus. He would have lived about 1,500 years before Jesus. And then you got this dude, Elijah. Elijah would have preceded Jesus by eight, 900 years. And yet, somehow, I don't know how, the Bible doesn't tell us, Jesus goes up on the mountain and these two dudes show up. Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? This must have been the trippiest moment for the disciples. They must have been like, did we eat some kind of mushroom before we came up here? This is nuts. Moses and Elijah. Now, here's the thing. I wanna highlight real quick the fact 
um, that it might be kind of hard to miss. The fact that the mention of these two guys right here uh, would have been deeply significant in the Jewish mind. So I want you to remember real quick that Matthew, the guy that's writing the Gospel of Matthew, is a Jewish man, and he's writing the Gospel of Matthew to a predominantly Jewish audience. And when Matthew would have said Moses and Elijah, when he would have said those two names, that would have had deep significance to the Jewish people. Let's put it another way. For the Jewish people, Moses and Elijah were not simply representatives from the Old Testament. They were actually representatives of the Old Testament. Let me see if I can explain it this way. That might be hard to follow. You know how in our culture, sometimes there are certain people or there are certain places that are so influential that their names, that even the mention of their names are actually used as terms to represent something bigger than themselves. You know what I'm talking about? So let me give you a couple examples in our culture. So here's maybe a good way to think of it. Like, Like if you think about the name Hollywood, right? Hollywood is obviously a city in our country. It is a location on a map. But you and I all know that Hollywood is so influential, that city is so influential, that it has come to represent something much bigger than just a location on a map. So like, for example, if I said, you know, we all know that Hollywood has had a pretty dramatic influence on our society. We would all know that what I'm talking about is not some geographical location on the map simply. What I'm actually talking about is is a representative of an entire industry. I'm talking about the film industry, right? Does that make sense? Or what about this one? If I said, um, man, things are looking good on Wall Street these days, which is not true. But if I said that, right, if I said things are looking good on Wall Street, what would that mean? Well, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not actually talking simply about, you know, the city blocks in Manhattan. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about American economy because this has come to represent, it's so influential, it has come to represent the whole. Or what if I said this? If I said, hey, stop acting like someone from Pittsburgh, Right. You would, know, you would know what I'm talking about. Am I talking about a location on a map? No, I'm talking about the representation of all evil in all of its various forms. Everybody knows that, right? I'm sorry if you're from Pittsburgh, by the way. So welcome to our church. We're glad you're here. So, right, but, so here's what I want you to understand. In Bible times, for the Jewish person, when you said Moses and you said Elijah, they were figureheads of something much bigger than that. And what did they represent? Well, do you know what the Jewish person would have called the Bible? They still do. Do you know what Jewish people call their Bible, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible? They will call it the law and the prophets. Or they will sometimes call it, listen to this, they will call it Moses and the prophets. Why do they call it that? Well, here's why. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are attributed to Moses. They are considered the books of Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. And then the prophets, the greatest of all the prophets would have been considered Elijah. And so when here it says that Moses and Elijah were there, what is that saying? It's a very profound statement because basically what's happening here is it's almost like Jesus is calling a staff meeting. And here he's got like the representative of the law department and he's got the representative of the prophets department. He's got the Old Testament there with him. And he's conferring and look at this. The Bible says they're talking with him. They're looking at Jesus and they're talking with him. And I'm just saying, man, if I could just eavesdrop in on any conversation, I would just love to hear, like, what were they talking about? What were they talking about? Was Jesus just, like, checking in? Was he just like, hey, guys, you know what? I'm down here. Just want to make sure heaven's going okay. Put you guys in charge. Everything going all right up there? You know, all the dogs doing okay? (laughs) Not letting any cats in, are we? Right, that whole thing? And I, I don't know, right? But actually, you know what's really fascinating? Really fascinating. The Bible actually tells us what they were talking about. Do you know that? In Luke chapter nine, when Luke tells us about this same circumstance, you know what he says? Check this out, let me show you. 
It says that they, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, spoke about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. What were they talking about? Well, the Bible tells us what they were talking about is they were talking about what was about to go down in Jerusalem. What was about to go down in Jerusalem? Well, you guys know the story. Jesus was gonna get arrested. He was gonna get crucified. He was going to die, be buried, but then on the third day, he was gonna raise again. What's Jesus doing? He was talking about what had to be, keyword, fulfilled. In other words, here's what I think is going on. This is crazy. I think Jesus was reviewing the game plan. I think he was saying, all right, guys, here's how it's gonna go down. Now, why would he be talking to these guys about that? Well, I'll tell you why. You might not know this, but did you know that the entire Old Testament foreshadows and prefigures that there is going to be a Messiah that is going to come and that that Messiah is going to be a suffering servant who's going to suffer for the sins of his people? And my guess is that in this moment, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are reviewing the game plan. In fact, can I show you another verse? Let me show you something. This is in Luke 24. Luke 24, after Jesus raises from the dead, the Bible says that he meets with a couple of his disciples and look what it says. It says, and beginning with, notice, Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, such as Elijah, he explained to them, his disciples, what was said in all of the scripture concerning himself. So the Bible says that Jesus showed them everything that Moses said and everything that Elijah said and everything the prophets said was all an anticipation and a foreshadowing of me, of me. That's wild. And so as this conversation is going on, I love this next part. Apparently, Peter feels like it's a good opportunity for him to speak up. And so Peter, can you imagine? Peter's up there. He's seeing all this happen. And so Peter now chimes in. Look look at this, verse four. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, It's good for us to be here. If you wish, I could put up three shelters. Some of you guys have different translations. It says, let's put up three tents. He says, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, some of us are like, that sounds like a really weird thing to say. You know what's interesting is the Bible tells us it was a really weird thing to say. Uh, If you read in in, uh, Mark chapter 9 or Luke chapter 9, do you know what it says? It says that Peter said this because he didn't know what he was talking about. That's what it says. It says that, listen, Peter was so scared. He was so terrified that he just started speaking gibberish. He was like, you know know what we need right now? Tents. You guys want to camp? You guys want to go camping? Greatest life group ever, right? (laughs) Jesus, Moses, Elijah. He's like, let's like contain this. Let's get this thing going. And I love this next part. So check this out. Peter, and you got to love Peter, don't you? His personality is so awesome. He's got that personality type where when in doubt, talk. That's like Peter. <laughs> Any of you got that personality type or know somebody with that personality type? If you know someone or you are this person, I just want to tell you, man, I love you. God loves you. You add so much fun to this life. And that's Peter. So watch this next part. So Peter's like, ah! and the Bible says that, Look at this next thing. This is awesome. I don't know if this is supposed to be funny. I think it's funny. While he was still speaking, so while Peter's still going, God just interrupts him. God's just like, enough about the tent stuff, Peter. And the Bible says that this bright, there was a bright cloud that covered them. Like, this is getting weirder as we go. A bright cloud covered them. And then a voice from the the cloud said, this is my son with whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. So what's happening here? Well, some of you, if you've been with us in the series, you might actually remember these words sound very familiar to you. And the reason they do is because this is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew 
God the Father speaks from heaven and says these very words about his son. The first time was back in Matthew chapter three during Jesus's baptism. The, the Bible says that the clouds parted and God the Father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so here in this passage in Matthew 17, God the Father reaffirms that. He reaffirms that. But I want you to notice something different. God is going to add something to this statement. And look what it is. This, this is so significant. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now, this is really profound. Let me tell you why. Think about who's there. You got Moses. Moses, who was the ultimate hero of the Jewish people. Some of you guys know this. Moses in the Jewish mind, there was no one greater than Moses except for God. Maybe Abraham and Moses were on the same page. Moses was the one who parted the Red Sea and led the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity. Moses was the one who declared to Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses was the one who brought the 10 commandments down from the mountain. Moses was the hero. And then you have Elijah, who is considered the greatest of all the prophets, and yet God looks down and he sees Moses and he sees Elijah and he sees Jesus and he points to Jesus and he says, that one, that's my son. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. In other words, what God was saying is everything that these other guys said, Moses and Elijah, was all anticipation and foreshadowing of him. And so now you dedicate yourself, you build your life around what he has to say. God gives Jesus his stamp of approval. And I want you to notice how the disciples respond because check this out. The Bible says in verse six, when the disciples heard this, when they heard God say this, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. The Bible says the moment that they heard this, they just fell right to the ground. They were scared to death. Now here's, here's the cool thing. Their response, their response here is really important. The way they respond is very important. And I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why. Let me, let me explain it this way. So let me introduce you to a term that maybe some of you have never heard before. Um, let me just ask you, has anyone ever heard this term before? It's a term called theophany. Has anyone ever heard of that before, theophany? Okay, cool. So I can introduce you to this. This is actually a theological term. And what theophany means is it means a visible manifestation of God, usually granted to central figures in God's redemptive plan. And so what is that? Well, if you look in the Bible, what you'll find is that throughout the pages of scripture, both Old and New Testament, there are occasional examples, and they're pretty rare, where God will reveal himself to certain people when they'll get a vision or a manifestation of God's presence. Like I said, it doesn't happen often. But when, when it does happen, what you'll notice when you read the different accounts of these theophanies is you will notice that there is a staggering amount of common features every time that it occurs. So what am I talking about? Well, let me give you a couple examples. One theophany is found in Exodus chapter 24. You can read it on your own. But basically what it is, is it's Moses. And Moses experiences the presence of God. And do you know how the Bible describes it? Well, let me tell you, see if this sounds familiar. Moses goes up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai. The Bible says that the mountain is shrouded in a cloud. The Bible says that while they're in this cloud, that there is a, what looks like a consuming fire that happens in this cloud. The Bible says that Moses has to shield his face from the presence of God. And the Bible says that when he comes down from the mountain, his face is radiating from an encounter with the glory of God, so much so that he has to wear a veil. Does that sound familiar to anything that we just read? How about this one? Elijah, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. The Bible says that he goes up onto a mountain, Mount Horeb, 
And the Bible says that while he is there, he has a theophany, an experience with God. And what happens there? God speaks to him, and Elijah has to hide his face from the presence of God. How about this one? I'll give you a couple more. Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a prophet. And the Bible says that Ezekiel gets a vision of God on his throne. And look what it says. He, he describes it. It's really weird. But look at this. In chapter one, he says, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from, from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. So Elijah, he's straining to find human language to explain what he's seeing. And then look what he says next. He says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. What's Elijah do when he sees God in this state? He falls directly to his face. How about this? Isaiah chapter six. The Bible says Isaiah catches a vision. He sees God on the throne. And the Bible says that as God is sitting on his throne, he sees these angels flying around. They're called seraphim. The Bible says they have three sets of wings. With one set, they're covering their face. With another set, they're covering their feet. And with a third set, they're flying and they are shouting to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole world is full of his glory. And the Bible says that when, when, when Isaiah sees this, look what he does. He declares, woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. When Isaiah sees it, he says, I'm, a de I'm dead. I'm a dead man because I have seen the king. And you know what's interesting? But the Bible actually tells us that what Ezekiel saw and that what Isaiah saw, you know this? John chapter 12, you know what it says? What Isaiah saw, get this, was Jesus Christ in his glory. That's what John says, Isaiah saw. In fact, John himself, John himself in the book of Revelation catches a glimpse of Jesus on his throne and look what he says about that encounter. He says his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. I'm just telling you, you notice this. Every time someone encounters God in his glory, in his full strength, the Bible says that their response is they will fall face down, terrified before him. We talk about this sometimes here at the Medina campus. I've had people that have come up to me and they said, man, you know what? I can't wait to meet Jesus. One day I'm gonna go to heaven, I'm gonna meet him. And you know, I got some questions I'm gonna ask him. I'm gonna ask Jesus some things about the way he ran this world. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give him a piece of my mind. And I just tell people that is not how it's gonna go down at all. You know how it's gonna go down? You're gonna see him. And do you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna fall flat on your face. You're just gonna fall down and you're gonna be terrified and full of awe. Why? Because every human being who has ever seen Jesus in his full strength can't even stand up in his presence. I love the way Philippians puts it. Philippians says it this way. It says that Jesus is in the very nature of God. It's in the very nature of God. Yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Look at this. The Bible says that Jesus made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. When we, when we think of Jesus as a human, we're actually thinking of Jesus in a humbled form. Do you know what this word means right here? Made himself nothing. It literally means emptied himself. It means that he divested himself of his rightful dignity, that he descended to an inferior condition. It means that he abased himself. Do you know what it means when the Bible says that Jesus made himself nothing and took on the form of a man? Here's what it means. Is that Jesus got on his knees. He got down on our level and he made himself accessible to us. He humbled himself for our sake. 
But what, what Peter, James, and John witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration was they caught a glimpse. They caught a glimpse of what Jesus looks like most of the time, most of the time. Now, I know some of you, you're hearing this and you might be thinking to yourself, this is interesting, it's fascinating, but quite honestly, man, come on, this is a little weird. Everything you're talking about here today, this is a little weird. You know, I just came here for a child dedication, man, this is bizarre. <laughs> and I get it, it is weird. It is a little bit weird. But why am I telling you this? And here's why. I am convinced, I am convinced that every spiritual problem, if not most of them, all of them, I believe that most of them stem from a core issue that any doubt, apathy, anxiety, unforgiveness, or insecurity that we face, that I believe that at the root of all of those things is usually they stem from a view of Jesus that is just far too small. Most of our spiritual problems stem from this issue that Jesus is too small. I think for many of us, the Jesus that we've been handed down is only a slightly bigger, slightly smarter, slightly better version than ourselves. And let me just tell you this, that when we imagine a little Jesus, we assume he can do just little things. And I think quite honestly, in my opinion, I think for most Christians, and I know by the way, not everyone in this room is a Christian. Some of you are investigating that. But I think for most Christians, quite honestly, we don't reject Jesus. Our problem is we reduce him. We make him far too small. So here's what we're gonna do. With the rest of the time that we have, I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And as the band comes up here, I wanna take a moment and I want you to just think with me about the way that you view Jesus. Because like I said, I think it matters. I think it matters more than you might know. And so what I wanna process and I want you to consider, just you personally here today in this time, is I want you to consider what I call five indications that my view of Jesus might be too small. So I just want you to think about this. Five indications that your view of Jesus might be too small, that my view of Jesus might be too small. Now again, I know not everyone in here today follows Jesus. Some of you are still investigating the whole Jesus thing. And if that's the case, by the way, we say this every week and we literally mean it. We count it an honor and a privilege that you would let us be part of your investigation. I mean, you could do whatever you want with your time. And so we count that as an honor. But I'm thankful that you get a chance to see some of these passages because hopefully it, it messes with your preconceived notions of who Jesus is. But I think for those of us who follow Christ, this is really important. Five indications that my view of Jesus may be too small. Here's number one. Number one, I want you to think about this for yourself. He's predictable to me. I think that, that this is a surefire sign that I have made my understanding of Jesus too small. When Jesus is predictable, when he never does anything that contradicts me or challenges me, when he never says anything that makes me feel weird or challenges my preconceived notions or beliefs or presuppositions or political views, I think it's a good sign that maybe you're dealing with a little Jesus. One of the statements we like to say here at the Medina campus, you've probably heard me say this before, but I think it's helpful. Think about this. If you have a friend who never challenges you, never disagrees with you, never confuses you, and never offends you, that is a surefire sign that you have an imaginary friend. <laughs> right? True or, true or false? True. Now, let's, apl let's apply the same logic to Jesus. If you have a Jesus who never challenges you, never disagrees with you, always goes with your, th your ideas are always promoted by Jesus. Never confuses you, never offends you. That's probably a good sign you're dealing with a construct of your own imagination, not the authentic thing, not the real Jesus. I guarantee when these guys went up on this mountain, they were not expecting anything like this to happen. That's because they were dealing with the real thing, with the real thing. Number two, how about this one? Uh, his words, Jesus' words are interesting and inspiring, 
but ultimately optional. It's interesting what he says. It's inspiring what he says, but I can like decide if I'm gonna follow some of it or not. What's so fascinating is that here you have God the Father, the creator of the universe, looking at his son Jesus, and he says, listen to him. Listen to him. Build your life on what he has to say. Don't just listen with your ears, listen with your life. I think one of the ways that we know that maybe we're, we're whittling Jesus down and our understanding is too small is that we let Jesus' words carry about as much weight as like Oprah's. And it's like, yeah, Jesus said some interesting stuff, but you know, Tony Robbins also said some interesting stuff. And I'm just gonna, you know, I wanna apply both of those things. I think, man, I think that's probably a good sign. You're probably making him too small. How about this one? Number three, I'm often embarrassed by him. I'm embarrassed by him. That when I'm in social settings, work settings, family settings, I find myself reluctant and scared and embarrassed to, to talk about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's probably a good sign. It's a good indication that maybe Jesus is too small. I think it's interesting, we don't have time to get into it, but it's interesting when they come down from the mountain, I don't know if you noticed in your Bible, Jesus actually had to tell his disciples, don't tell anyone about this until after I raised from the dead. Why did he have to tell them not to tell anybody? I'll tell you why. Because after an experience like this, they probably wanted to tell everybody. They probably wanted to go down to the other disciples and be like, you guys should have came today. <laughs> right? You know, one of the signs that you know you're dealing with the real Jesus is you can't shut up about him. His power and transformation in your life is so incredible that you're not embarrassed by him. Number four, how about this one? I don't fear him. Maybe a good indication that Jesus is too small is you don't, you don't actually fear him. And listen, I know what some of you are saying. Some of you are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds weird to me. I thought I was, I was supposed to not fear Jesus. Like I thought I was supposed to be able to come boldly to him and he was supposed to be like my friend. Like, isn't that the, he wants a relationship with me. And let me just say that on one hand, you're right. On one hand, you're right. One of the beautiful things about the humility of Jesus is that this incredibly powerful God has gotten down on his knees and he wants a relationship with us. He has made himself accessible. But I want you to hear me on this. I want you to hear me. Do not confuse Jesus's humility for weakness. Don't do that. Do not confuse his patience and his gentleness for powerlessness. When you begin to feel entitled to forgiveness, when you begin to think God should love me and should forgive me, I think that shows that we've lost our fear. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when you pray, if what you envision is you envision a bohemian pacifist Jesus wearing a robe, standing holding a little lamb with his mullet flowing in the wind, a precious moment's Jesus, I think maybe you need to replace that with Jesus on his throne with a face of fire that you would be terrified by. Might be helpful. There's the last thing, number five. Trial and hardship have more power than Jesus. I think that's a good indication that maybe you have reduced Jesus down, that he's small, is when trial and hardship in your life have more power than him, that you give those things more power than Jesus. Now, listen, I, I don't wanna for a minute um, minimize the fact that there are some of you in this room who are going through serious trials and hardships. I don't wanna minimize that for a moment. But I do want you to hear me say this. If you're a follower of Jesus, I honestly believe that quite possibly, quite possibly, maybe the greatest source of the anxiety that you're facing the fear that you're facing, the insecurity that you're facing right now and the circumstances that you're going through right at this moment 
I believe that maybe that at the heart of it is it's happening because your view of Jesus is just too small. I think Matthew is inviting us to come and to see Jesus is more than you think. He's more than you think. And so as we have a, a time here to pray and worship, I wanna encourage you, you talk to God, you talk to him. You deal with some of these questions in your own heart and maybe you just need to ask God, God, would you help me to see you as you really are? Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I wanna say thank you. Thank you that you're real and that you're here and that you're beyond our expectations and our imaginations. And so I pray that even in these next moments that you would meet us, help us to come to the real Jesus and that we might be transformed. And we just ask these things in your name. Amen.